cliffcentral.com We're going to cry, laugh, and love. And we're going to do it together. The Life with Libang podcast. That is correct. No lies detested, detected rather. That is what we do here every single week on Life with Lebang, courtesy of cliffcentral.com. If this is your first time listening, then welcome to the show. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. My name is Lebang Khosana and I am a healer. That is apparently my calling. I didn't know until a lady just shared with me. You know when people just stop you in the road and they say, hmm, there's something about you. I feel like I sense this, this is, and she was a prophet. And hey, she told me a lot of things that I wasn't even aware of, but it kind of makes sense. It makes sense. Um, when you, when you look back. So I'm very excited to, to be with you today and to be spreading the good word like we do here every single week. And this week is no different. We have carefully, carefully 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 selected an individual who is doing great work who is going to uh, shed light on some of the work that he's doing and of course this is all in an attempt to make us understand things better so i am very 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 excited to share with you today that my guest is an author i love authors i think authors are like automatically like just you know better than most of us because we don't care to write our stories down and write our thoughts down but you guys do and that that's a good thing <laughs> i'm joined today in studio by Sibusiso Chabalala. Sfiso, yes, Sfiso, my bad. Sfiso Chabalala. And he's the author of the book Discover Your Entrepreneurial genius. Now, this is something that I think is so important, uh, not only for the average listener or just the average human, but Everybody in general that wants to make a difference or is trying to make a difference, I believe that this is the kind of book that would um, add to that journey, right? So in this book, you argue that society has far more knowledge and access to resources. And now's the time for us to be inspired to show up and act differently, you know? So I'm, I'm interested to, to hear more about firstly, like where the grand idea to write your thoughts came from. And then we'll switch it up a notch and really hone in on a a concept that as a young black professional, I struggle with, and I know many of my peers struggle with black tax. Mm. But before that, Swisso, welcome to Life with Lebang. Thank you for joining us. And yeah, tell us you. more about your journey. No, thank you for having me. Uh, it's always good to share my thoughts with the world uh, on this cold uh, job morning. So uh, my, my story is very simple. Uh, grew up in a rural area uh, in Pumalanga. And I found my, myself in Jobek, like any other, you know, young kid who's coming from a rural area, uh, you know, far from Jobek, you're always wishing, you know, what's happening there? I would like to be there one day. So I guess I kind of like went through the same story and I found myself here, studied in Pretoria and yeah, the usual, get a job. And at some point in life, I guess you, you, you grow beyond the normal day to day, right? And you, you reflect around you. And, and I think part of those reflections, I got to a point where I had to ask myself and say, why has it been so easy for me to actually accelerate my career from like semi rural to, you know, finding myself in all these high opportunity areas? Why is it so difficult for the next person? But I also got lucky that uh, I guess in, the places that I find myself, I spend a lot of time with the entrepreneurs and I, I always observed, you know, white entrepreneurs, they tend to find themselves in M&A conversations, measures and acquisitions, but like black entrepreneurs, we find ourselves in enterprise, enterprise supply development and all of these government things. And I was like, why? Something is not right here. Right. And I guess through that journey, uh, you know, the the thought of the book started uh, coming through, but uh, it really, I guess, took shape in 2020 where I decided to just quit corporate because I felt at some point corporate South Africa was more racial than a place that really enables careers. Uh, so if you're black, it's very obvious that you're black when you walk in some of these big boardrooms. And... <laughs> That was not very comfortable for me, right? And I said, maybe it's time to step out, try and see if I can relate to this space in a different way. And I think through that journey, 
that's when the story really started coming together to say, hey, maybe there is a different way. Uh, We're probably looking at some of these things with tunnel vision, uh, you know, influenced uh, mindset, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think through that, Mm. the pages started coming through. Sure. And I guess it was also a way for me to just work through my own thinking, Mm. you know, to say, Am I the same individual that, uh, you know, I started off as mm. or have I just become this new person that I don't even understand myself? And the funny part is a large aspect of who I ended up being was was not really, I guess, somebody that I, I enjoyed, somebody that I I could I could look at as a role model. Sure. Uh, I, I just became, you know, your next typical black executive in South Africa, you know, drinking, you know, girls, all mm, of these things. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think for me, I, I really had to work on my mindset and say, Sfiso, clearly you started this thing because there was something much bigger sure. than just earning, you know, some cash. Mm. And I think that's what you, you, you find in the book or that's what I found as I worked through the pages to say, man, this is actually a relevant story for quite a lot of South Africans out there, mm. especially black professionals, right, who are also struggling to break out from the typical nine to five, right, into, you know, something more amazing, something more exponential than just earning a few rents. Yeah, exactly. Sure. That is that is a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. It almost seems like you had to do a lot of soul searching. A lot in order to get to this point and really understand what it is that you're experiencing. Yeah. So, so in your personal experience, is black tax only about money? And if so, why do you think that is? Because like I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's like a burden, you know, for, for most of us who we understand the concept of black tax, but it, it almost feels as though it's, it takes away from the joy of what we do. Mm. So in your opinion, do you think black tax is only about money? It's a good question. Uh, before I answer, I think what I would like to explore is the word black. Why, sure. why do we have to associate to associate it with black? Mm. I think for me, I mean, because also in South America, they've got something called brown, brown text as well. Like mm. Almost like a similar concept, right? Sure. And... When, when I when I reflect on it uh, and I look at my own story, uh, I mean, I've I've had to pay for my siblings' tertiary education. I've taken lots of kids to school, uh, but I do it because I enjoy it. Uh, I've got family members that uh, you know struggle. Uh, some are doing very well. Uh, it doesn't give me comfort being able to say. I can enjoy, you know, all these high opportunity areas, this nice lifestyle. And I've got, you know, a sibling, a brother who's struggling and I'm okay with that. So just the concept of black text, I think for me, is probably not, I don't think it's the right term. I do acknowledge that uh, there are difficulties in supporting each other as families uh, but if we, we're going to start naming things such as black text, then we should also ask ourselves a different question. Why the same group of people who complain so much about black text on Sunday, they can happily give away their money, 10% to the church. Hmm. Why are we not complaining about that? It's because you'll strike a nerve. <laughs> so, so yes, uh, some people do believe in this concept of black text. But uh, my view is that if we understand what it means to be to be human, uh, we'll probably start looking at uh, such terms uh, differently. Because my view is that family is the grounding for everything that we do, and if family is important to all of us, then we shouldn't have things such as black text. We should be motivated to actually help our mm. communities, to help our families. Because sure. ultimately, I mean, look at Israel as an example. It has accelerated their growth so quickly. Why? Because of how charitable uh, Jewish people are globally, right? So if you go to most communities that are doing well, actually, you will find that 
there's always that charitable uh, angle. Uh, maybe just to close on that point, I mean, even if you look at the South African context uh, in the 1900s where, you know, Anglo Bulls, you know, they were fighting each other, uh, you know, the Africans community, they lost, what, more than 70% of uh, the farming land. And if you think about it, I mean, their main economy was farming. What did they do to actually get themselves back into, you know, normal life? They had helped make our Somebody might have called it another version of tax, mm. but they, they did the help maker because they understood that their strength as a community lied in being able to help each other. Sure. So, so I think we need, we need, we need the black person probably to navigate, well, not navigate, but we, we need, we need a different way of relating to our issues without, I think, amplifying first the color. As like an important thing, like this thing being black tax, because I think if you move away the color, you would realize that these are basic family issues around financial planning and making sure that we are able to allocate funds properly and help each other. That's it. 100%. So, so you speak about, you spoke a little about, about mentality and that, you know, we remove the black and that's what will make it make sense. And I completely agree with you, but I want to speak about victim mentality yeah. a little bit because I believe that that is one of our biggest uh, yeah. pandemics yeah. right now yeah. as a people. And in the book, you even write that the victim mindset is a personality trait where one sees themselves as a victim of other negative action, others' negative actions. Why is, in inverted commas, black tax, you know, given such mm. a negative mm. connotation? Mm. And, you know, why, why um, are, are we failing to see it mm. as, as something positive that yeah. in the long run could benefit us as a people, because mm. to your point of it just being a family thing, yeah. it's just, it's simple. It's as simple as that. Yeah. But over the years and over, over time, we've, we just view it as such a, a uh, type mm. of thing. Mm. Are we just like, Oh my gosh, again, yeah. you know, the phone call is coming in month and you know what the request is going to be on the other side versus being excited yeah. to be able to assist and uplift and, and help, you know, so w where does victim mentality play a role in this case? Mm -hmm. I think what makes South Africa difficult is, I mean, 300 years of colonization and slavery is not, is not an easy thing. Sure. Uh, and, and I think what we need to accept and acknowledge is that that in itself, uh, you know, created very two strong polarized uh, environments, right? On the one hand, one person feels to be very superior and the other hand, one person feels to be, you know, the useless one. And you you can't just, you know, say now that it's post-94, uh, suddenly the world is, is beautiful, it's all fixed. merry, all of these things are gone. Mm, yeah. mm. So, so you have to... You have to take those things into account when you reflect on South Africa and how we respond to challenges such as black tax and what we're talking about today. Yes. So part of the victim mindset is really around not fully understanding or grasping the significance of what really happened, right? But I think it's also being able to, you know, to share the correct stories as a country because we also, I think, choose to unite ourselves around common stories, like, for example, Jan van Riebeck and everything else. It makes us feel good as black people, right? But we don't go, you know, what happened before Jan van Riebeck? I mean, I look at my own clan, you know, uh, the Shabalalas, right? Uh, we established ourselves in Flogamvula, which is modern day uh, Vangenstrom. And when I look at what happened there, uh, I mean, before even... The African community in 1881 established it as Wackenstrom. Uh, you know, Shaga and his crew, they had already displaced us. Mm. So we, we've had our own issues. I mean, you go to our communities today, uh, such violence, right? I mean, I always say to people, walk down, uh, you know, to black communities in general, right? I mean, go down Bree Street, you know, take out your phone and see if you, you, you'll walk out of there with that phone, right? So... There is so much that has happened and there's so much negativity in general in our communities that we are not dealing with. And, and, and that is resulting in, you know, a type of person that walks into a room already defeated mm. because it's just that baggage that we are not dealing with, right? So I think for me, 
what has helped me, for example, in my own story, I could have said, you know, my rural background is a disadvantage and I walk around with this victim mindset. Or I look at it as what were the, what was the life like, you know, what was the upbringing? What was the warmth of my family, my grandparents, everybody, right? You know, being on those mountains, I could look at those mountains in a positive light and say, wow, you know, these days I even do like trail runs and stuff. And it's because of that upbringing. Or I could look at those mountains and say, oh, yeah, these people in Joburg had everything, you know, all the big buildings. And we were just stuck in mountains. That's why I can't do anything. So we have to crush this victim mindset if we're really going to be able to solve problems as honest as, as we can. Because even this black tax issue. It's becoming such a difficult thing to deal with because we've named it, we've given it a color. We put tax as well next to it. It's such a horrible thing. Mm. While we could just be sitting down and talking about, hey, what advice do you have in terms of, you know, family planning, how we can allocate funds better, you know, how do we plan for education, things Mm. like that. So, So we really have to crush that mindset because if we continue to look at the world with that victim mindset, Everything you see, you will always have to see it with with that lens of, oh, you know, they look at us this way. Sure. You, you go to large corporates today. Oh, institutional racism. Ah, you know, if you're black, this is not going to happen. That position is not for you. If you're a woman, if you're gay, if you... And I say to myself, my goodness, what happened to just talent? Why do we have to look at talent with all of these lenses? Because we're creating more victims. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's another key thing to say. If we're going to move forward, we really need to deal with that victim mindset. And we all have the, the power to actually uh, crush this thing. Yeah, it's it's actually very triggering and quite problematic. Just listening to you, I'm already just thinking about so many situations where I've seen talented, powerful people hold back yeah. uh, or, or rather you know, cut themselves off from opportunities just because of that mindset. And instead of choosing to see a situation in one way and progressive and, um, you know, uplifting, they just choosing to see something that sometimes isn't even there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll give you a practical example, right. Uh, within the startup space. I mean, I remember at one point, like when I made the point earlier around, I would notice that a lot of White young people will create businesses and find themselves in incubation and MAs and all of that. But like black companies, you know, will find themselves in ESD and those things. And and it's easy to make it like a, a black white thing to say, oh yeah, 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 these guys are able to get into MA and incubation because uh, you know the companies are white, it's their uncle, blah blah blah. Mm. Uh, we don't have that. That's why we are end up ending up in ESD. And I'm like, no, actually. What I found when we started doing some of the research was that some companies create IP and it's very easy to incubate IP because guess what? If, if it's something new, it's something that you know, uh, changes the world and you can earn some good revenue around it, even myself, I'll put my money there, right? But you go to a lot of our companies, we are targeting the 30% uh, B procurement, we're not bringing in like a true value, right? Mm. Not to say all black companies are like that, but that's what you find to dominate uh, the space. So again, you, you look at that, right? If you, if you talk to, to the community, it will be more around, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. White companies only give money to, uh, uh, what you call, uh, white uh, startups. We, we, nobody's giving us money. And I pose the question. I say, well, there's so many black industrialists. So why are they not coming together and forming a black venture capitalist funds? No answer. Hmm. Nobody's ready to have the real conversations because those real conversations require you to take a step back and do a lot of soul searching and a lot of digging and a lot of finding how we got here in the first place. What is the, what was the real problem? We can't continue to blame. No. You know, uh, certain situations just to, to suit our story. Yeah. Eventually we're going to have to start taking responsibility. Yeah. And, and that's just the truth of it all. But so where does entitlement play a part? Mm. It's particularly for this conversation of black tax. Mm. There are situations where certain family members just automatically feel entitled to your earnings and all of your hard work. Um, and 
again, that victim mindset creeps yeah. in where, uh, how come I didn't get this? And, mm-hmm. you know, they are the ones who have this and we don't have this. So then they owe us. Mm-hmm. There's definitely something to, to be said about this entitlement, which I see could potentially be a hindrance mm-hmm. as far as the progress of this. If we all sit down together and we say, okay, cool. It's no longer black tax. We can rename it to whatever we want it to be. And we all now understand that we're not doing this as a burden, but we're doing this as, you know, as progress and mm-hmm. to move forward. Yet the, on the receiving end of it, yeah. that entitlement could still make you a bit reluctant mm-hmm. to participate. So where does that play a role in your opinion? So I think for me, it goes back to family and how we, 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 we grow our kids and how we model ourselves to, to our kids. Uh, if, I mean, I've met families where from a young age, it, it, it's very clear. The tone is set very clear to say education is important. Uh, being self-sufficient is important. Uh, being accountable to yourself and to the bigger family is important. And, and what you typically see with those families is there's success in each and every individual. And, 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 and that's really where we need to move to, right? Where when, when you talk about a family, it, it shouldn't be what you see today where I'm the first one to make it. Uh, so, you know, we've made it because that's kind of like the, the, the culture we are creating now. Mm. Right? We just need one family member to get it right. Mm. We've made it. But what does it even mean to get it right? Just because you're earning, you know, some cash, uh, what? So, so you, you, you got it right. And for me, those are the things that I could continue to progress this mindset of, I mean, I use a, a horrible word sometimes, right? We are creating leeches within our families hmm. where, you know, my big brother, you know, hey, big brother, I need X and, oh, here you go. Because I don't want to disappoint you. I want to, you know, come across as this cool person. Sure. Uh, I pop into the township. They see my car. Windows drop down, you know, there's some goodies that are going to come out. That can be the culture we continue to progress, right? So to answer you, I think for me, we have to go back to the family and say, how are we making sure that at an individual level, there's responsibility, there's accountability, there's, there's clear expectations for each and every family member to say, as a unit, this is our vision. This is, you know, like a company, you know, vision, mission, all of that stuff. Let's go and hunt. Why, why can't we have that mindset as a family? Let's go and hunt. Mm. I mean, I, I love the story of African uh, wild dogs. You know, people look at a lion and they think is the most successful uh, predator in the, in the wild. And it's not. It's an African wild dog. What makes it successful? It's strategy and it's a strategy around Let's go and hunt together. Mm. For me, if we, if we switch to that, I think we're going to start to see families where there is pride in each and every member of the family to actually be productive. And imagine then if we then amplify that across our communities. Yeah, that, that sounds, you know, on paper, it looks like it's the right answer. Mm. It sounds like definitely this should be the next step that we take. And I like that you mentioned family values because I, I understand that this is, you know, education was a big thing in your family as well. You know, your, your grandfather believed a lot. He valued education. You know, he went ahead and um, educated your father to become a teacher. So this, this is definitely, I, I see that the, this would be your response to this kind of question, but I, I, a part of me just wants to play devil's advocate and say, but practically in a situation where there isn't even that one person who is accountable to themselves, who values themselves, who values family. And within the entire family unit, there's not even a small sense of hope. Where would such a family start in that case? If the closest light is maybe a distant cousin or, you know, a distant, distant relative, but as far as the first unit, there's no one. Mm-hmm. How would practically, how would that look for, for that situation? It, it, it's not an easy problem. I think we need to be honest, which is why I took it back to family. 
right? It, it, it's, it's, it's like trying to say, how do we make families uh, wealthy? Let's get all families to be wealthy. It sounds good, mm-hmm. but but it's not easy because once we go down to the to the steps of so how do you build wealth? Let's start with the most basic thing. Every rent you earn, you have to put something away. That that's not an easy thing, right? It, mm-hmm. it sounds it sounds easy, but practically it's difficult. So I, I, I would I would apply the same principle here to say. At the end of the day, uh, humans are complex. Uh, the destruction that came with uh, what happened in this country uh, is too severe. Uh, but we have an opportunity to progress to a different uh, direction if we choose to be honest about certain things. And and for me, that honesty comes from one. We need to limit miseducation. Hmm. Because in this country... Uh, especially with social media and all of these things, it's so easy for like one thing to just be thrown out there and that's the next, you know, talking point, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I I encourage that the same, the same way it's easy for bad things to just, uh, you know, take shape and explode. We can do the same thing with, positive stories, positive messages. Uh, I mean, I just look at our country around 1994 when we used to do that peace in our land. Uh, it was such a positive story and it was it was everywhere. Everybody was highly motivated, you know, we're so happy to be South Africans. Uh, but you don't see a lot of that anymore. What you see today is, is a black community that, I guess to your point earlier, uh, you know, that is struggling a lot from entitlement. I think that came with uh, what we thought freedom is going to mean. Yes. And and I think the, the 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 biggest issue that that has created. I mean, you look at our schools. Our schools are getting worse, and you ask yourself who should fix them. People will say the government, and mm. you say, well, where are our hands? I mean, I've got hands. You've got hands. Uh, so one of the things I talk about is it is very important for people like you and me who find themselves in high opportunity areas to have a link back to our native communities because that is the only way we start to send back the right information, the right education. Also, economically, we can start to introduce some productive systems. I think the biggest issue, and this is why we're struggling, there's this big push towards Success means you've moved out of the township or you've escaped the rural areas, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I think the more we start to change the mindset and say success within your space, within your community is actually what we should be striving for because the added benefit of that is your identity is is the most powerful thing, especially if whoever is around you, you know, is something that you can identify with even when you solve, you know, you're solving for, you know, your own community. Because part of what creates the problems that we see today and why we're struggling so much is I spend so much time in places like Sentin, et cetera, solving big problems. And I always ask myself, imagine if these hands, this energy could be applied in my native community. Different story, right? Mm. So, there's a big mindset shift I think that we need to we need to go into and part of it uh, needs to work through this whole idea of success in South Africa if you are black it means you must find yourself in a white community or you know things like that that cannot continue because that's exactly what continues to make us to look down in our communities but Swiss I hear you however if I decide that I am successful, but I don't want to leave the township, for example, and I'm going to stay and I'm going to build there and I'm going to raise my kids there. And this is all in the name of uplifting the environment and creating successful spaces versus going to the already established suburbs and creating new suburbs, whatever we're going to call it. And when I decide to do this, the community turns on me. 
I, they break into my home, they put me in danger, they put my kids in danger. It kind of makes me not want to continue to do that. And this is not to say that in the suburbs, crime isn't there. It's there as well. But if I'm doing it in the name of I'm not leaving, I'm going to stay to empower my people, to make it work, to mm. be an example for others who are going to follow, but I get burned. Mm. You, you know, we, we have to be realistic about some of the, the, the things that will make us not want to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe let's tackle one important part, right? Uh, and I hear this a lot where the first reaction is always this danger that is associated with our communities. Yes, there's danger. There's danger everywhere, right? But we have to be realistic if we say we want to make change. Uh, And I think it is not difficult to put the right systems in place. I mean, look at uh, Maboning as an example. Uh, That part of Jeppestown, a few years back, you, you, you wouldn't want to find yourself there. It's dangerous, Right. Even today, I mean, you, 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 you go around Maboning before you get to that main strip. It, it's not a place you want to find yourself. So I'm making this example because I'm saying <laughs> you can't say you want an ideal picture, but you are not willing to work through the mess. We have to work through the mess. Now, what are the ingredients of working through that mess? Security is one of them. And that's why I'm using uh, Maboning as an example, right? So, so I guess where I'm trying to go with this is it's not Sfiso or Lebang alone who are going to solve this problem. Mm. Uh, there's, a, there's a bigger DNA that we need to question in our, in our communities. Uh, there's a big change management uh, element that, that needs to happen. Uh, but I think a large part of it is we have to see our communities as places of opportunity. If we continue to see them as dumps that are dangerous, even the motivation to do just one small change is impossible. So, so the same way that you believe if you are here where we find ourselves, you can just, you know, come up with an idea and voila, you've got customers, blah, blah, blah have the motivation to think like that as well about our communities because it is possible, right? Let me give you an example. A friend of mine, we were talking the other time and uh, maybe I shouldn't mention the company name. So there's a company. (laughs) There's a company. (laughs) So in most townships, uh, you would find that all these puzzle shops that sell Amagota, Maguña and all of that, uh, you know, you'd normally... uh, put in like some cheese in there and things like that. So the company that supplies uh, the cheese and all of that stuff, he asked me, he said, how much money do you think in a township like Soweto such a company makes? And I was like, ah, it's just, I mean, that cheese, it's just a slice of cheese. You know, I was thinking maybe a few millions. And he said, no, these guys are pulling in excess of three billion annually. Wow. That is the amount of money that is trading in our townships. This is the value that we don't see. Mm. And the same people that we blame as white monopoly capital are extracting that value on a daily basis in our own communities. Mm. So this is why I'm saying we have to change the way we look at our communities, see them as opportunities because they are. Yeah. And they are because for everybody that is not able to find themselves here, guess what? That's their opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's real. It, it's it's definitely real, and it's to, it's what you're saying. It's not just going to be little Lebang and Sfiso. It's going to be a collective. Yeah. If we can all come together and have that view, then definitely okay. we we can start to make the change that we so desperately seek. And uh, you know, I, I I struggle with these conversations because as soon as they start getting like you know interesting and we start getting yeah. going that's when the time just starts to like <laughs> shiver away as soon as we start getting somewhere it's like ah we have to cut the conversation but so, so in closing you know just just to bring it back to the book um you know and and, and the concept of 
you know, closing that wealth gap for our people and, um, you know, alleviating some of the, the stresses that we discussed earlier. You know, you speak about understanding the economic rules of today. Yeah. What exactly are those and how can families benefit from understanding the economic rules of today in an attempt to close that wealth gap, in an attempt to relook black tax and what it previously was for us going forward? What are those and how can we benefit mm-hmm. from them? So I think I think to be simple, um, there's so much change that's happening uh, today. Uh, I'll just give a few examples. A uh, few years back, we were hit with load shedding, which seems to be getting better now. Uh, that created a lot of businesses. And you ask yourself, how many uh, of our young people, black people, actually earned any value uh, through that? And the value is very small. Uh, it was the same uh, white companies that basically got into that space. Uh, digital is a, is a big thing, digital disruption. Uh, there's lots of new opportunities, uh, you know, cloud skills, all of that. Uh, who's actually, you know, getting into that space, again, is not our people. Uh, so when I talk about uh, economic rules of the day is what created success a few years back uh, might not be necessarily the same thing that creates success uh, today. So it's being mindful of where is the market today? Uh, where can we participate? Uh, not just obviously participating as uh, job seekers, but how can we create value? How do we leverage some of these uh, value chains? So some of the things I talk about is there are value chains that could be very successful in a place like Sentin. Uh, what stops us from Taking that value chain and replicating it in our communities, uh, you know, so 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 is those is those kind of things. So there's nothing there's nothing magical there, nothing special. It goes back to a very simple thing: education and hardworking hands. That's it. I love that. Nice and simple, straight to the point. Sviso Chabalala, thank you so much for joining us today. It's It's been nice to get to know you. I think we deserve a part two because there's <laughs> there's still so much that needs to be unpacked. Um, on social media, I know you've got a hashtag, Be The Change. Be The Change. Where we can follow you as well. And where can we find your book, Discover Your Entrepreneurial Genius? Be The Change on online. Uh, you can get uh, digital copies, but you can also print on demand. Uh, we've got a few copies that are signed. If people obviously use that link on that mail, we can get the book to them. We're trying to get the book to the stores as well. Uh, we should be, we're planning to do a proper launch soon. <laughs> then the books are going to be in the stores. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for choosing to be with us here on Life with Lebang on cliffcentral.com. And I do wish you all the best. I do believe that if we had more books of this nature that, you know, can inspire the young black mind to view entrepreneurship as an option, then definitely South Africa will be a better country and the world will be a better place. No, thank you. And I've got a few copies for your listeners. Yes. Nice. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. If you're listening at home, don't go anywhere. We're quickly going to go for an ad break. And yeah, as you know, this is Life with Lebang, where we only bring the best people onto the show for you to learn great things. We'll be right back. Okay, okay, okay. And just like that, we are back. It is Life with Lebang on CliffCentral.com. And I'm really, really, really excited <laughs> to have the next guest in studio. You know, I, I, I don't, I wish I had the time to talk about when I first met you, Toko, and so that the, the audience can understand how far back we go and right. how deep this is because it just matters so much to me that we're having this conversation. Yes. Uh, so if you're sitting at home and you're wondering, who's that sweet voice in the back coming <laughs> through? Her name is Toko Zile Mangwiro. She's shy, petite and laser focused, but she's also rare. It's not really the money that inspires her. She's the founder of Nilotica, which is for black women. But rather the discovery of her own formulation of organic hair treatment that speaks to every black woman who stood in the face of adversarial marketing that, that just wants to straighten, smooth, dye, reshape. You know, they always tell you, switch it up. I don't think Togo's about switching it up. She's like, you know what? It's your natural crown. Own it. Wear it and rock it. So today we are going to just spend some time talking all about the history of African hair because we need to know where we come from. Right. So we know where we're going. Yeah. So I was talking, what is the history of an African child's hair and why is modern society trying so hard to switch it up and tell you every day, change this, do this, do that. It looks wrong. Why are they doing that to us? 
Well, it comes from way in history. So I wanted to focus on um, hair grooming. And as I was doing my research, I always get so touched around anything natural hair because it's, it's an absolute pride of who we are, where we come from, how we identify ourselves. Um, and so when I was doing research, I found that Natural hair grooming was such an important thing in our history in that it identified our statuses in tribes. Um, it identified who you were in the, in, in the tribe according to marital status, according to your religion, according to your age. You could tell which tribe people came from. Whoa. You could tell what ages they were. And the more wealthy you were in that, in that era, the more you'd be more elaborate. You'd use animal uh, fat, you'd use natural oils around you to kind of express yourself through natural hair, growing your hair. And, and people took pride in that. It was also a bonding, um, exercise and a bonding culture where you know how long braids used to take when we're growing up, right? The yeah. whole day you'd sit from six in the morning <laughs> and go home at six at night. Um, and so that was a bonding grooming culture that started way back in Africa. Uh, but due to the dawn of slavery and colonization in the 18th century, you get a loss of that culture coming through mm. very deeply where Africans lost being together, taken overseas, um, through slave trade or colonized in the, in the, in their lands and they had been cut off. So mm. it, it talks about the resistance of hair being cut off and you see the importance coming through of how hair was so significant uh, in, in those centuries. Um, but then what comes through is uh, the different beauty standards through that colonization and slavery. Mm. The mm. new beauty standards of um, hair not being good enough, hair being shaven off, um, the straighter the hair, the better. And the term good hair then comes up. Mm. We, uh, it's, a, it's an American concept, but it still uh, impacts the whole world till today. Where the straighter your hair is or was, the better your hair was. So then the African had to find ways to straighten the hair, live up to these beauty standards that were not for us, that were not, it's almost impossible if you think about it clearly. Good hair and those beauty standards were never for us to live up to. Sure. We're already experiencing and expressing our beauty standards before colonization and slavery. So that's basically where the history of hair care and this impact of um, good hair concepts come through uh, and you see those still impacting us till today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just... The, the thought of working in corporate and yes. having dreadlocks and having yes. locks and froze, it's always met with so much tension. Yeah. And, you know, to take, take it a step back, even as, as young as primary school, high school, yeah. you're already taught, well, you can't have that kind of hair because yes. it's messy yeah. or it's not appropriate. <laughs> don't, even, don't even get me started. <laughs> yes. Don't even get me yes. started. Yes. So Toka, how has the African crown evolved over the years? And how have we moved and morphed and changed with the times yes. and found ourselves um, as the years have gone by? Right. Um, so from the concept of good hair, let me tell you what I found is that the gent who invented relaxes, his name is Garrett Morgan in 1909. Mm. He's trying to fix a, a, um, a sewing machine. And you know that resistance and that squeakiness of sewing machines, he's trying to create a solution that would actually uh, help the sewing machine. Um, and he puts a solution in his hair and the hair straightens. Wow. And he then finds the concept of relaxes and says, this is how you can straighten your hair and take out those kinks and coils that belong to us. And so, I mean, I don't know if I blame him or not, but just finding that, that reality that he is a black man who found a solution that has changed the world ever since. How we look at ourselves, how we alter our hair, how we take out the kinks and coils out of our hair. Um, but because chemicals in that solution have impacted the black woman so much that we found that out of every other nationality, we had fibroids and cancers that didn't impact other nationalities. We had scalps that were burnt, um, hair alopecia. Um, so quite, quite a few African women experienced, um, an adverse, uh, um, 
reaction to those chemicals. And so that education started coming through in the 2000s where you start seeing the natural hair movement. And that was all about resistance. Remember, the Afro has always been politicized in history. You see the Black Panthers come through and talk about mm-hmm. um, resistance. But also when you look at the imagery, it's all about the Afro locally. You see the Afro coming through, through resistance to apartheid. Mm. You know, all those beautiful uh, pictures of just showing how important hair is. I always go back to how important hair is. I think we never note that as we, we go through our hair journeys. And so the evolution from relaxers and people understanding what relaxers do and the education that comes through was that we started embracing natural hair. And even in that scenario, as the black African understands the hair, um, it starts being owned by other nationalities creating product for our type of hair. Mm. And so we have 80% consumption and 3% ownership. Also, that that is so lopsided that we're not creating our own products. Exactly. <laughs> but this is in the 2000s. Sure. You know, um, and in terms of using raw materials, I mean, even in my research of trying to create Nilotica, I started using raw materials first. So black women were using raw ingredients and, and touching on before slavery and colonization, how uh, um, the African used animal fat and natural oils around them to kind of uh, groom their hair. Um, and fast forward, I do want to get to uh, modern day where we talk about the trends that are now mm. that I'm really, really enjoying where you see the African crown come to life. There's a lot of self-expression, a lot of pride. You see in the styles reflect the very first type of styles that are elaborate, regal, really, really exciting scenes. So um, it's come full circle. There's still a huge struggle in terms of, oh, I'm too tired to do my natural hair. Oh, mm-hmm. it's too difficult to maintain. Sure. And it's almost a non-understanding of where natural hair comes from, sure. the evolution, the history, and how long it has taken us to come to embracing the natural hair mm-hmm. um, and almost really, really now celebrating the crowns that you have. 100%. Yeah. And this is exactly why I'm so so excited to have these conversations with you because yeah. they are so important and there's so much that we just don't know. Yes. And we're so quick to say, oh, it's so difficult to maintain yes. an Afro and <laughs> oh, my drip, my locks take so long to twist. And we just kind of find whatever excuse because yeah. the ease of, you know, just a blow and dry and yeah, relax yeah. And, yeah. and wake up and, yeah. you know, yeah. we've sort of, been conditioned to believe that about ourselves so what we're trying to do here by having these conversations is really to unpack the truth and take us back to the beginning yes so that's where nilotica comes in you know what is the purpose of nilotica in helping to maintain and nourish africans natural hair and look and why is nilotica the brand that's going to make me so confident in maintaining my african look right so uh, nilotica steps in there in terms of allowing people to firstly enjoy their natural hair so through the I want to almost say non-education and maybe you meet your natural hair for the first time. You're coming out of relaxes and it's just behaving differently. The idea is that we walk you through the journey. You get to experience products that work instantly. You put it in your hair and you mm. actually step back and realize just how beautiful the product is. Mm. We created it to work um, as you put it into your hair, but also using local ingredients that are nourishing and moisturizing and that you're not left with hair that you don't know how to deal with. Um, and I think the idea of, of Nilotica is just to almost help you remember how beautiful your natural hair is and almost take you back to falling in love again with your natural hair and having the patience to then take care of your hair. Yeah. Um, even if you don't know how to take care of it away, the natural hair movement comes from whatever. It's not about that. It's about really just nourishing your hair, walking through uh, that process of taking care of your hair. Mm. Um, and as we grow as a brand, we're now bringing in the celebration of natural hair. Um, the type of hair using those beautiful elaborate styles, uh, bringing in the crown and mm. really taking care of your crown. I think that's where Nalashika steps in and just, yeah. you know, elevates what natural hair is. 
Oh, I'm so here for this. I love it. I love it. What are the different types of products yeah. that Nalotica offers? And if I am, you know, considering switching up my hair journey, if I've been relaxing all my life or, yes. you know, burning my scalp or whatever the case, but now I feel like I'm ready to take the plunge mm-hmm. and begin my natural hair journey and fall in love with my hair again. Yeah. What are some of the products that Nalotica offers for me to do that? So our hair behaves differently to every other hair. So you start off with a shampoo that is sulfate-free, chemical-free, that is moisturizing. So our hair loves moisture, loves water. And when you use the shampoo, you're cleansing your scalp and you're cleansing your hair, but you are not stripping the natural oils out of the hair. And then you've got a conditioner that is moisturizing, really strengthens your your strands. It's got avocado oil. It's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, conditioner and helps in growing your hair. So you want to maintain your hair growth. Use that conditioner once a week and it's really, really, really moisturizing. And then part of the natural hair journey, unfortunately, is that our hair mats and tangles. Um, and so you need to detangle the hair. You need to... Um, Make sure that your strands, like we say, you, there's a, there's a, a normal level of shedding mm. around natural hair. Mm. You don't want your hair to be breaking and detangling helps with that. So sure. we've got a detangling cream that really, I'm very biased, but it's called the best <laughs> detangling cream <laughs> in the market. Um, and then you've got your aftercare, your moisturizer, your oil. So our oil, I'm very proud of our oil because it's got, it's got marula, marula. It's got marula oil in it, which is a luxury oil, really. Mm. Um, such a beautiful, full of antioxidants and vitamins. And when you put in your hair, you really feel such, it, it just softens the hair so beautifully. So we've got that oil. And when you put those two products together and you put the butter and the oil together, you get the moisturized hair. And that's what I struggled with for so many years that I had to create a whole range of, of product to just manage my hair. So those are really beautiful. And then we've got a new range that we've just launched, which is an aloe and avo. So focusing on local ingredients again, the avocado oil strengthening your hair. And the aloe just soothing your scalp. Um, a lot of people struggle with the scalp being dry. Mm. Um, when you have protective styles, this, I just put in these braids and I'm telling you the first night I nearly cried because it was just so tight. Mm. And as I put on the, the foam, it just kind of soothes your scalp and Good. just releases all that tension. Mm. So. It really is a beautiful range and we call it the ultimate protective styles range because you just within that protective style, you can still take care of your natural hair. So that's the idea is that you can really express yourself whichever way, but you still have to take care of the hair right underneath your protective styles. I love it. I am so excited to be having these conversations. If you are interested in your hair journey and you want to elevate your experience and you want to really get involved with what you're doing and you know, you want to take it to another level, then this is the kind of uh, show that you should be listening to because we have Togo Zile Manguero <laughs> coming to tell you and she knows what she's talking about, right? Since Togo's not sitting here just like, yeah, you know, I'm she's like, this is what you need to do and yes. this is how you do it because she's got your back. All over social media, we can follow at Nilotica if you want to know more about the brand. We can also follow you at hey at hey underscore talk. Yes, yes. Correct. So let's do this again uh, very, very mm-hmm. soon. I'm quite keen to see what other conversations we're going to have and really how far we can take, um, you know, the natural hair story because it's such an important conversation. It's such an important conversation. So this was the first one. You've just been listening to Crowned, the Nalotica podcast for African hair. <laughs> yes. Ah, I'm so, so excited. Yes, so excited. thank you so much at home for listening to another episode of Life with Lebang. We'll be back next week. Tokozile will be back very soon as well to tell us more about her amazing product. And please don't go anywhere. Keep listening to cliffcentral.com. Enjoy the rest of your day. Go out there and be great. Thank you for having me. Hey. Cliffcentral.com.